when I was 18, 19, 20, I was making 20 or $30,000, which doesn't seem like a lot of money, but it seemed like a lot of money to me. And then I just didn't have any money. <laughs> and so there were a lot of moments where I was like, man, where's my money? And I never like sat down and made a budget or anything like that. I just did a pretty good job of living paycheck to paycheck. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Welcome back to another episode of the Millionaires Unveiled podcast. This is episode number 171. Clark, what's going on, man? How you doing? Good. How about you? We haven't actually talked that much this week. No, we haven't both been just busy, busy, busy. It's a crazy time of, of year. Like, I always made fun of people. I, I think, I mean, Choose FI, they're a great podcast, but they would start at the beginning and be like, hey, Brad, what's going on? I'm like, dude, these people totally know what's going on. Like, they talk all the time. And now it's like we do the same thing, but we actually haven't chatted that much this, this No, nah, it's been wild. We usually do a lot, but yeah, this week, especially in, in the last couple of weeks, you, yeah, both of us are just slam busy. I'm ready for February. Yeah, it's crazy. It's almost one month out of 2021 here. So election turn or uh, presidential changing of the guard this last week and you know, all sorts of things, developments happening policy wise and a few things are, are happening and shaking and happening potentially more down the road. But are you changing anything based on new administration here now that Biden's taken over and started to play some cards? Well, the market keeps going up. I mean, that's one thing. And did you get any game stock? Or game? Yeah, game stop. Yeah, man, I missed a boat on that one. <laughs> hey, dude, you got to be on the Reddit forums checking out all the hot stock tips. <laughs> Company, companies just driving their stock price going nuts and they aren't even making any money. And you know yeah, something funny news. about GameStop? I had a former client that did a large amount of business with GameStop and did a ton of ton of business with GameStop and really had to start shrinking the business because GameStop was was really struggling uh for a little while and this is back in back in the day a little bit but you know slow payments and you know non missed payments and and stuff and ultimately decided to kind of close that relationship and now I think their market cap's gone higher than it's ever gone before like double yeah I mean it's crazy I, I think it doubled it was like 10 billion and now it's 20 billion I may have my numbers wrong but I just saw something on CNBC where Jim Cramer was talking about it and the, the valuation just went crazy but missed payments or checks whatever you just mentioned we were talking a little bit on an interview we just did about unclaimed property that's with the state and how much unclaimed income or assets or whatever it could be right the state is holding it's pretty wild yeah i mean texas alone where i'm where i'm located you know claims that they've paid out over three billion and and there's no telling how much they hold right now i get on there annually and just check for myself and and i've been lately just checking on on some of the businesses and stuff too and it was i was surprised how much stuff was out there for some of the the, the companies i'm involved with and even had a little bit $36 check that uh, was for myself that was dated. Score. Yeah, man. It's going to pay for some Torchy's tacos this next week. That'll pay one month of your Peloton membership. Yeah, it'll do that too. But I'm going to buy some tacos because I just I'm always <laughs> thinking about my tacos. <laughs> but no, they. Uh, it, it's funny. People get on there. You look at stuff and, and we, you know, I don't know how many people are aware of this, but I just kind of happen to be poking around a little bit. 
And man, I saw some, some estates for, you know, some people here in Texas. Obviously it was clear that the person had passed, but man, there was five and six figure sums of money that the state is holding. You know, that's, that's some serious cash. I mean, for me, 36 bucks, I'm gonna go buy me some tacos, but somebody out there, these estates, you know, some serious cash for me. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. But a hundred plus thousand dollars in a sheet or unclaimed property held at the state for just one individual I just happened to, to, to look at. And it's definitely something that, you know, wherever you've lived to definitely go check up on. Is that something you check up on in New York there at all? Yeah, I did. I mean, I have probably, I probably haven't done it this last year, but I did a couple of years ago. And even in Utah, I mean, I, I just searched my last name and there were, I mean, some of them were, I, th- I think I found like a little bit for my uncle, for my cousin. I mean, it's just kind of weird. Like there was even some from my grandpa, I think, or brother. So anyway, yeah, if you don't know about that, just type into Google or just do a quick search, like unclaimed property for your state. And you can just go in and I think they just do your name, right? You don't even have to do your social. Yeah. So you can search by name and then to, to claim it, it depends on what state you're in to, to be able to get it and how much it is and stuff. Sometimes you'll have to provide some more information so they can match it to you. But yeah, it's definitely good practice. I mean, the states are, it's unclaimed property. I mean, it, you know, for whatever reason, some company or who owes you money or, you know, a company you worked for owes you money or whatever, forgot to give you a last check or whatever it might be. I mean, there's so many scenarios, banking account that you close, you forgot a little bit of interest on or whatever it might be gets turned over to the state. And if you don't claim it, then the state holds on to it. <laughs> so they got a lot, a lot on their balance sheet. Yeah, you can claim it and all you have to do to claim it is send 10% of it to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast, LLC, and then you can get it. (laughs) Yeah, that's a donate to our charity if you want. Oh man, that's good stuff. All right, well, today's show, we've got Joel. He's an electrical engineer. He's got a net worth of 518,000. He's about 275,000 investments, 200. 200 of that's in a 401k. He's got a Roth for himself and, and one for his wife, and he's got some home home equity. So great episode with Joel. He's well on his way to becoming a millionaire, like we've discussed a little bit before. Sometimes we like to profile those that are they're well on their way. One, to provide a picture of, of, of kind of the journey, but also some of those that aren't quite there, but what they're doing to get there. You know, we all got to start somewhere, and sometimes it's good to, to see where people are starting uh, so that we can kind of uh, build our own journey as well. Last week we had Andy. He had a net worth of $1.1 million. He quit his day job after 15 years and started a new career in digital marketing. He's the current host of Marriage, Kids, and Money podcast. He's a paid-for house worth about $420,000, half a million dollars in retirement accounts, and about $100,000 in cash. It's a great interview with Andy, so if you're interested, go check that out. We appreciate you tuning in the podcast week after week. If you enjoyed the show, we'd appreciate you leaving a five-star review on either iTunes or Stitcher. It really helps us grow the show and reach new millionaire interviewees. Uh, we really appreciate those who have written in and very appreciative of those who entered the uh, the book contest as well. We'll get that copy out shortly. If you're interested in multifamily opportunities or commercial real estate, reach out to us, millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. We'll get on a phone call, kind of walk you through our process and get that going as well. Without any further delay, let's get into today's episode with Joel. Joel, do you want to just give us a little about your background and what you're up to now? Uh, yes, I'm 33 years old. I'm an electrical engineer. I live in Portland, Oregon. And um, so what I'm doing now is working my nine to five from home, like a lot of people. <laughs> and my wife and I had a baby. So uh, that's a challenge. Yeah, for sure. That's awesome. Congrats. W- what is your net worth today? Today is 518K. 
And how is that broken up? Okay, so 25000 is in cash. And then I have 272000 in investments in a couple different funds between my wife and I. There's a HSA that's 20000 There's my prior 401k that I haven't rolled over yet, which is 122,000. There's my current 401k, which is 11,000. Um, my wife's 401k she rolled over is 73,000. Um, then she has a Roth IRA that only has 3,000 in it. And uh, we have a taxable account that we just started for our baby that 5,700. And my Roth is thirty one thousand seven hundred. And then there's <laughs> there's some accounts that are zero that I used to have. Um, we have no debt except for our mortgage, which is two hundred forty thousand. And then the home's estimated value is four hundred sixty thousand. Awesome. So your investment accounts, you've got quite the gamut. There are all of those invested in individual stocks, mutual funds, index funds. What's the breakup there? They're more or less uh, index funds. I would say 60% or so. <laughs> you know, I should have done a little bit better homework. Let me just pull up. I'm not going to try to do a um, commercial for personal capital, but you can you can pull up holdings and just see what your allocation is. 63% is U.S. stocks, 22% international stocks, and then... 7% is bonds. Uh, another 7% is in a REIT. And so those are all going to be in index funds. I think I use in my um, in my rollover accounts at Vanguard, I have most of that in VT, VTSAX. And then at work, I think they didn't have that. So I did an S&P 500 and then a, a mid cap uh, to complement that and kind of approximate VTSAX. And then um, I do 20%. I try to do the same allocation in all of those accounts, and maybe that's something I'll change in the future or do differently. As as, um, but most of these are in tax deferred accounts right now. So yeah, no, that's interesting. So, yeah, I haven't I haven't done a lot of strategy as far as which, which things go in which account, but I I think I started with uh, kind of the Dave Ramsey model of a quarter in you know each of these four categories, one of them being foreign. Or international. international. And, uh-huh. Yeah, I had looked at, I had kind of looked at the historic returns of that category and didn't like them very much. So I cheated down to 20%. But other than that, I've, I'm kind of like US total stock markets, 60%, foreign is, uh, or international is 20%, and then bonds and REIT is the rest. It's it's interesting you bring up the the international. We just had Chris Hogan on the show, and and that was a question that that Clark brought up with them is just you know the recommendation on the international for the longest time, at least in the in the I guess in the last five ten years or so, international has trailed you know U.S. stocks and and you know the S and P and everything. And so he asked them if that was still the recommendation. And Chris Hogan brought up that, you know, he and Dave have conversations about that all the time. And yes, you're right. It, it, that's true. You know, and I think too, it's interesting, you know, we invest so much in the U.S. stock. I mean, there's so much international exposure anyway, as it is. Mm-hmm. And Clark and I have kind of had the discussions is, is that model that he's come up with, is that pretty archaic the way that investing is gone? Just given that 
when I think Dave Ramsey came up with that model and, and has been preaching it forever. I mean, heck, you didn't, you don't even really look up funds by growth and income anymore. Grow, I mean, I guess a few American <laughs> funds might, you know, know, look up by growth, but like, you just don't really, you don't, just don't really look at funds. And I know like some of the purists in the finance world or the finance world discuss funds like that. You know, it's fixed income, it's growth and income and whatnot. But for the layman, the general public, we don't even really look at investments like that anymore, right? We have these index funds that's become popularized. We're down to like zero fees for all these things. It's a totally different world now. And we had that discussion yeah, about that international. It's you, funny you bring that up as, as an investor that you don't like the international funds or the returns. So you changed it. Well, that's what you got to do as an investor. You got to say, hey, um, I like this plan, but I don't like it all the way. Or, you know, I'm going to make this tweak. And uh, I think as much as anything, you get success if you have any plan. <laughs> But yeah, when when I first started, I was like looking for these categories that he had touted. And I was like, what's this growth in income? I'm not seeing like you go into Morningstar or something. It's, it's divided by large cap, small cap, growth and value in kind of a grid. And you're, you're like, okay, I can, why don't they just tell us like, you know, how they fit into this language right. that most people are most people are using and all the all the 401k holdings are named like large cap large value or <laughs> aggressive growth i guess aggressive growth sometimes but yeah you see aggressive yeah yeah i think one of the important things is it's not necessarily how much you have in a diverse portfolio but that you have a diverse portfolio this is one of the things i learned from rick adelman was like the power of rebalancing i used to listen to his program quite a bit and where I obviously don't agree with anybody a hundred percent. So, but I was intrigued by this concept of like, you have 50% stocks, 50% bonds and you rebalance when the stock market drops, you take some of the bonds and you sell them and you buy the stock. Um, and then when the stock market goes way up, you rebalance and you sell now overpriced stocks and you buy the bonds. And so what I did was I did some historical simulations as probably many of your listeners who are engineers like to try to do with stock market data and stuff. And I was just seeing like what happens to your returns for, for a given portfolio. And what I found was the weighted average of your portfolio is not the return that you get over the long term if you're rebalancing. What happens is because when things drop down, you're buying them. And then when they're, when they're relatively expensive, you're selling them. What happens is the actual return you get, it gets shifted towards the highest returning asset class in your portfolio. And so if you have 25% in U.S. stocks or 30% in in international, if you have 25% in international stock or in international stocks or 30% in international stocks, or you have 20 or 15%, as long as you rebalance your portfolio will trend towards whichever asset class is performing the best out of all of them. And how often do you do that, Joel? How often do you rebalance? Um, so what I found in my simulation was like, there aren't any fees associated with it. It's most effective to rebalance every day. But <laughs> I also found that it's not that different to rebalance quarterly. Like, still get a big bang for your buck rebalancing quarterly. Quarterly versus annual. I, again, I think it's a small difference. But the other thing I do is when there's a big market correction of any kind, like uh, what happened here 
back in March. That's when that's one of the, that's one of the things I do is I try to um, I try to use like a mental trick when bad things are happening in my portfolio to make it seem like I'm still doing good or at least I'm doing better than everyone else or something like that. So like when everything tanked like around March 20th or so. I was like, well, I'm going to go in my accounts and rebalance everything. So I went in, you know, you can go into your, most of the 401ks, you can go in, access on online and just say rebalance, rebalance everything. And then I was going to, because the stock market had been valued pretty high before <laughs> before it dropped. And um, I planned on putting like $5,000 into my child's college savings account or whatever we're calling it. It's it's just a brokerage account. But when the market did so terribly, I was planning on using money from like, I guess from my bonus in the fall to fund that college account. But when I saw that the market was seemed like panic levels, like dropping, I decided to just might as well get him a good start <laughs> on the uh, college funding. So March 25th, I put like $3,000 in there and uh, it's up to like $5,700. <laughs> already but obviously i'm not like hey i'm day trading or something with my kids college fund but i was just thinking like (laughs) (laughs) yeah if you if something terrible like happens in the market if you just have a little bit of cash you can put in even like a thousand dollars or five hundred dollars sometimes doing that will make you feel like you did something (laughs) for your account and then you're tempted to you know jump ship and redo your whole plan to Try to save yourself from the market, <laughs> whatever it's doing. So I, I know. So let's just jump back to your story here a little bit. Yeah. Going on the allocation, and obviously, I know we talked before. There's some other interesting pieces, including your house and the real estate uh, where you're at in Portland there that you mentioned. So, but just backing up, I mean, t- tell us who Joel is. What, what's your story? How did you get here? You're you're young. You have a net worth over five hundred thousand. You're well on your way to becoming a millionaire. You'll get there in a few years, probably. Right. who's Joel? How did this all start? Okay, so I actually had my first part-time job when I was 13, and it was working for the janitor at our church, helping them clean the church. And I got this job because I like to spend money, and I wanted to go to like the corner store and buy candy, and I wanted to buy CDs when that was a thing. So I would get like $50 every two weeks or something, because it would be like two hours of work at five bucks an hour. Don't check the math on that. That's probably wrong. But so that was my first job. And then I honestly haven't not had a job. Like I haven't gone to work for maybe more than two weeks since then. Like I've, I've worked every month of my life since then. I've never taken time off. So when I was 15, I got a job at Wendy's and from 15 to 17, I worked at Wendy's, you know, taking orders at the drive, the drive through window. And I did that because I wanted to go to this private Christian high school in my town that my siblings had gone to. And my parents were like, hey, this is expensive. You should pay for half of it if you want to go. And so I was like, okay. So I worked at Wendy's. I was paying like a hundred bucks a month. Wasn't that expensive. And then I was buying gas, paying insurance and spending a lot of money, just like going to restaurants with my friends after I, after I was able to drive. And then after that, I wanted to spend more money. (laughs) So I got a better job after working, actually worked for a year at Subway. And that was mostly because my wife 
who was not my wife at the time, was working there. We were in high school together as well. So after doing the food service stuff, got a pretty awesome job waiting tables. Did that for about three years. And during the summertime, I would take like leave from that job. And I found this job doing road construction. And that was $33 an hour. And I got that when I was 17. (laughs) So every summer I did that and I'd make like 10 grand in two or three months, which when you're 17, 18, 19, it's like, I can't believe they're paying me like a grown man when I like, I don't need to shave, but once every two weeks or something. It wasn't until I started college and started like looking at math that I discovered the power of compound interest. And basically I was in, I was in high school and I was just, I was working, I was having fun. I was playing basketball and I always just thought I'll take care of growing up and working hard at academics in college. I don't need to do that in high school. I know just as much as all these people around me when in reality, I had neglected uh, what would become the backbone of my career, which is mathematics. I finished high school. My uh, my wife, she was in, in my class with me. She finished and she was the valedictorian of our school. And I was, I guess I was like the class clown. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so um, we started dating like a few days after high school. Her parents weren't like they were both educators and so they knew that I wasn't the best student and they were like their daughter obviously was the best student and they were like okay this is like this is not good news and this this will probably pass this is a phase or something so I was my first semester after high school I decided to volunteer to help with Hurricane Katrina because it was 2005 so I went down with my buddy who built who who is already like a licensed contractor and just like donated work on helping the church like rebuild and helping some of the community members with uh, repairing flood damage. And I was like, man, this is so much fun. I like working. I like doing construction. And maybe for my career, I'll be an electrician so that um, I can have my own business and I can work with this guy because we had a good time. But I do want to go to college just to be like a better or like have more book knowledge than most electricians. So I was like, I'll go to community college, take some electricity, electronics classes, electrical engineering courses. And um, and then when I go into being an electrician, I'll have a little bit of an edge. So I went to community college that winter and I tested into math 60, <laughs> which if you don't know, that's like how to add fractions. And I spent a year and a half doing prerequisites, basically just math every single quarter to get to the point, which is like pre-calculus, where I could start these electrical engineering courses. So once I finished that and started doing the electrical engineering courses, first of all, doing that gave me a huge boost of confidence because I found out I wasn't actually stupid or bad at math. I just hadn't learned how to do it and was actually getting straight A's in it. So that, that basically finding out that I was good at math, good at problem solving gave me the confidence to go into electrical engineering and switch um, my mindset from going into construction, which is a perfectly legitimate field and probably would have been fun and profitable. But it's just the opportunity I saw was, you're really good at this. This is fun. Let's just do this. And um, I remember somebody coming to my class from 
from the local tech university and saying, Hey, it was a, it was, it was a calculus class. And he said, Hey, you know, you guys are in this class because you like math and, uh, you should consider going into engineering and coming to our school and learning engineering. And he basically put up a list of like the engineering salaries for the different kinds of engineer. And he's like, um, electrical engineering is the hardest, um, but it pays the most. I don't know if that's actually true, but that's what he said. And then he, you know, showed these other fields of engineering. And my, <laughs> my mindset at the time was like, well, I'll just do the hardest one. And if it's too hard, then I'll try, try one of the other ones. Um, and I think that that mindset actually through most of my twenties, especially after I got married was do the hard work now, front load all the hard work. Because when you're like 40, 50, 60, you're not going to want to go <laughs> do a bunch of hard stuff. Like I wanted by that time to be, you know, not coasting through life, but I didn't want to be doing the long hours. So I would work full time, um, get off work, go to night class, study all Saturday and Sunday and do my homework and start it over again. I did that for about three years, finished my undergrad degree. In, in engineering. But one thing that I did that helped was my first job I got just with my associate's degree. And that job had tuition reimbursement. It was a HVAC controlled engineer. And so it was only $32,000. So you think it's like, oh, it's an engineering position, but it, it wasn't very high paying. I actually took an hourly pay cut from waiting tables. And, but they had tuition reimbursement. So if you factor that in, probably probably a raise. Um, but that definitely helped me to A, graduate without very much debt. And then B, once I found my first job after college, I was able to say to negotiate a little bit higher pay saying like, hey, I know I don't have experience doing this kind of work, but I have, you know, three years of engineering work that I've done and shown that I can get raises and that people appreciate my work. And so, yeah, it was a really hard couple of years after high school, getting through college and being newly married. But definitely after I finished college <laughs> and was just working full time, uh, it felt like I was on vacation because I had so much free time. And so where I'm at now is I've done that again with graduate school. I just finished in 2019. Um, now I'm doing software engineering, um, algorithm development, uh, machine learning type stuff for a tech company that's based in the Bay Area. And um, I'm working from home, like most people who work for a tech company are probably working from home right now and taking care of this baby. So that's where I am now. Nice, man. Good for you. Yeah, we're recording this just for our listeners at the end of July 2020. So pretty interesting. Oh, Joel, there we go. It's an amazing story because of really persistence, right? And you, you kind of changed paths a couple of times. You went back to school. You started at a community college, right? You were married young, but you, you figured it out and you kept going and you kept grinding. And now you're half a millionaire and, and on your way. So, it, it, I mean, it's, it's really an amazing story. So congrats, first of oh, all. Is there a moment in time that you could point to where you said, look, I've got to change my outcome. I can, I can see where I'm headed and I don't, you know, you mentioned construction. You said, I don't want to do that. Is there a moment in time where you said, hey, I got to figure something out and this is the route I'm going to take? Was it a conversation, an experience? Was it just planning for the future? Anything particular? Well, I think there were a lot of moments where, particularly since I started working so young and I was able to make, I think, 
when I was 18, 19, 20, I was making 20 or $30,000, which doesn't seem like a lot of money, but it seemed like a lot of money to me. And then I just didn't have any money. <laughs> and so there were a lot of moments where I was like, man, where's my money? And I never like sat down and, you know, made a budget or anything like that. I just did a pretty good job of living paycheck to paycheck and not not running up debt, which I thought at the time was a good, you know, a good, uh, good job on my part. But yeah, I think there were a couple moments for me. One was in college when I realized that I was good at math and I wasn't a moron. You know, it's like one of those limiting beliefs. Like if you miss something in in mathematics for for a quarter or for a week even, the next week what the teacher is saying is going to sound like complete, like unintelligible. Uh, you know, something that seems impossible to right. understand. And if you don't like do the work and go back and find out where you went off the path, it's just going to get harder and harder and seem like, oh, I'm not a math person. So I think one of the big things for me was realizing like, oh, I'm I'm actually very capable at doing this. I just need to do the work. I need to work as hard at learning as I have been working in like jobs. And I knew how to work hard. So one thing I did was I I live like 40 minutes from community college at my parents' house. And so I would commute there. And then I'd have like this three hour break in between my morning class and my afternoon class. And um, obviously, I'm not going to drive like an hour and a half round trip home and back in that period of time. So I just hold up in the library. And for three hours, I just do the calculus problems. And so I got very good at just doing hard work on my on my studying that and grind it out in the same way that I had worked hard in my in my jobs. And then I would say another moment where I kind of had this epiphany was it was at some point after we had graduated college, we had about $40,000 of student loans, probably mostly for living expenses, honestly, when we were uh, first married. So we used Dave Ramsey's plan to get out of debt. And that took a year (laughs) because we were making so much money. How much were you making at the time? So when we graduated uh, as a couple, we were making 160 grand. Wow, good for you. So you were making and, 160. You paid off. You said 40, right? Four zero. Yeah, yeah. And I think I'm sorry. That was after like a couple years. We were making 160. I think initially I hadn't gotten my better job yet, so I think we were making like 120. But you know, our rent was like 700 bucks a month, and we just didn't spend money on anything else except for paying off that those loans. We were like, let's get rid of these things. And in my planning to kind of project how long it would take to get rid of them, I kind of just foyered or, or looked at, okay, what what's next after this? And, and what, if I can project getting rid of this loan, what else can I project doing with this income? And um, I kind of go back to that idea of front-loading the work. I was like, well, when I grew up, my dad, I don't know how much he put away for retirement, but it Certainly, I don't think it's as much as he wanted to put away. You know, I think he probably did the company match for a long time. And then by the time he was retiring, he was like maxing out everything, trying to do the catch-up contribution. And I was thinking, you know, we're fairly newly married. We're going to have kids in the future. My wife might quit her job. 
we should try to get as much money into this thing as possible so that if expenses come up in my in my life, like sending the kids to college and stuff like that, I can back down to just doing the match and I'm not going to like hose myself. Right. Right. Um, and, so, and when you run yeah. those when you run those calculations, right, of, of if I invest X amount today and it grows at X percent over 20, 30 years, whatever period mm-hmm. you put in, right? I mean, you come out, it's amazing, right? If you look at those, <laughs> if you start 10 years later or even five years later, how much you have to put in and at what rate to catch up. Right? Yeah, actually, I have a, a pretty cool spreadsheet I'm looking at right now. And it basically says, what's the... What's the value of a dollar you save right now when you're 65? So if you're 20 years old, every dollar you save is going to be worth $90 at 65. That's assuming a 10% return. But when you're 27, it's only $45. So I would look at stuff like that and be like, man, if I just save a dollar today, I don't have to save $2 when I'm 27. (laughs) Or I don't have to save $4 when I'm 34. You know, like if you can max out your retirement account when you're 20, that's like maxing it out four times when you're 34. Yeah. And so just that kind of stuff. That kind of uh, thinking is what kicked it off. Yeah, really, yeah. really motivating for me. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good answer. And we appreciate you opening up and sharing. So so thank you. <laughs> Let me. I was actually, I was, I was kind of like, after doing this kind of calculation, I was looking at the, um, the catch-up contribution. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, so when you're 50, if you haven't been saving... For retirement, they're going to let you save another six thousand dollars, right? But <laughs> right. if you look at what what a fifty year old today, if they had maxed out one year when they were twenty, which would have been thirty years ago, that would be worth one hundred sixty thousand dollars. So the catch up contribution should be one hundred sixty thousand dollars. Really catch up? <laughs> exactly. Right. Like, they're never going to catch up if they're only saving an extra six thousand dollars. So let me just ask you, Joel, here, I know we're getting close on time. Let me just ask you a a, a few rapid fire questions here. So you mentioned the debt, right? You had the $40,000 in student loans. Did you have any other debt, car debt, credit card debt, or or just the student loans? I had a credit card that I got to try to build my credit and we used it on our honeymoon. (laughs) And when we got back home, I went to fill up with gas, like on the way home from the airport and it was declined. (laughs) It was like a it was like a twenty five hundred dollar limit or something. But other than that, we haven't done debt. Not, no debt. Yeah, good for you. And you mentioned just before the show, just for our listeners, you're a, you own your home, right? No other real estate. You do own your home. You have a mortgage on it. How much equity do you have in it? So that's actually probably the reason we're as far along as we are. I guess the equity on that is four sixty minus two forty. Uh, or sorry, yeah. 460 minus 240. So that's 220. Yeah. 220. Yeah, that's good. That's awesome, man. Good for you, especially at a young age. Yeah, that's just one of those kind of luck things. <laughs> yeah, you got into, yeah, you got into a hot market, right? But at the same time, you it's like this other stuff, right? At the same time, you, yeah. were willing, you were willing to go to school. You were willing to do additional classes. You were willing to go to school while, you're, while you were also working. You went back to get your master's, right? Mm-hmm. I think activity creates luck a little bit, right? In a sense, you start taking those chances. Yeah, and, and definitely. Down. And I, you know, there's always like, oh man, like the the townhouse is up our street. We're selling for like 175 at the time, <laughs> and like two years later, they were selling for 350. And with my wife and I, with our income, I think 
our mortgage at the time was like one eighth of our take home pay or something really small. I was like, man, we should have bought a couple of those townhouses. But <laughs> you can't build yeah, yeah. So in the in the same way that we were lucky and buying into the good market at the right time, we're also unlucky and not buying in more. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, that's water under every real estate investor says, or really any investor, right? Stock investor. Yeah. Should have done more sooner. <laughs> so have you ever used a financial advisor? I haven't. I did one of like Dave Ramsey's ELPs the first time I opened a Roth IRA. And I don't know if things have changed, but it was it was even difficult to follow his own suggested allocations because the person selling the products, they were like they were through an insurance company and they were just called like lifestyle portfolios and there was just like four portfolios to choose from. You couldn't say I want a quarter in this or that and it wasn't a terrible product, and I'm sure if you invested with that, it you know it wouldn't be a total waste of your money. But I just I didn't have the flexibility doing that, and I had learned so much. Like the the things that I learned that made me want to get my money out of that and put it in index funds were also the things that I learned that made me feel I didn't need a financial advisor. Okay, so you. you... I guess toyed with one once, right? Not anymore. Uh, what about as much as you're comfortable sharing household income? What's been your range of household income through your working years? Okay, so when we were married, it was about thirty thousand, and then when we both graduated, it went up to a hundred thousand, and then climbed up in six years to like one sixty. And then my wife, she came home because we got two foster kids. I know this is kind of a bomb at the end, but we had two foster kids for um, the last three years. And she was staying at home and taking care of them. They were toddlers. And then they went back to their mom to live with their mom. And uh, and then we got pregnant. And now, now she's staying at home with our baby. So during that period of time, my income, I feel like it's plateaued around... Uh, between 100 and 120k. Well, good for you. I mean, that's amazing. You grew it up to 160, and, and congrats again on on the new baby. Um, how much do you spend a year? Household spending? Do you know? Ideally, about sixty thousand dollars. But <laughs> honestly, it's gonna be more like seventy five thousand dollars because you write up the budget, and it's like, oh, this month we're gonna spend five thousand dollars, and you do that for a month, and then. The next month you spend seven thousand because you didn't think about it, or you know something came up in the in the in the first month, and you're like, well, we'll put it in next month's budget, and then it'll be okay to spend the money. <laughs> um, so <laughs> ideally, I, a bit. yeah, if if uh, if I was unemployed, it would be uh, much lower than it is now. But yeah, between sixty and seventy five thousand. Okay, great. So we've talked about the past a little bit, what you're doing now. What about the future? Do you have a, a net worth goal or do you want to become a millionaire by a certain age or passive income? Any any sort of financial goals for the future? Um, financial goals. I, I actually want to become somewhat self-employed. Right now I'm working from home and I'm seeing like how easy it is to work for my employer and how much free time I have Outside of that, I'm not commuting. I have weekends. And I I was even looking at just getting a part-time remote job. But a lot of them are full-time remote jobs. And so, yeah, if I could build up a base of either project-based contracts or a number of part-time contracts, I think I could make probably double what I'm making. 
So that's kind of like my career goal is to eventually be more self-employed. And I think that having um, a higher net worth will allow me to do that with a lot of peace of mind. Yeah, nice. Good for you. So just final question here, Joel, I, I, I think your, your story will resonate with a lot of people. So just either mistakes or advice. Is, is there something you wish you would have done differently? Or maybe if you were giving advice to somebody, you know, what, what advice would you give? Was there something you're glad you did or something that you did differently? What's any final words of advice here? I would say I have, don't look at your account. <laughs> I mean, you can, and you probably will the first few years you, you become an investor just because it's exciting to think, to see things move. But if you're on a journey to get to like a million dollars or, you know, a higher net worth, it's going to be years or decades before you're there. And so logging in every day and checking it like Facebook, like hitting refresh on personal capital, especially if there's any market volatility, it's just going to be, it's just going to cause you stress. So um, I think one year I just said this year, I'm not going to check until the end of the year when I'm like updating my spreadsheet. I'll just, <laughs> yeah. Hopefully I don't need to rebalance or anything, but, and I did that for a year and I was like, it was fine. Everything yeah. was fine. I checked the end of the year and it didn't, it, well. it was still in your account. Yeah. We've, we've talked to some millionaires where they, they check every day while it's going up and they don't check at all when it's going down. Right. The other, the other thing that I would really stress is don't think about getting to million dollars as a linear process. So like right now I have 500K, right? And so a lot of people would say you're halfway there, but actually with the way compound interest works and the number of years that I'll eventually take to get there, if you look at just the calculation of constant contributions and constant interest, which is, you know, a little unrealistic, but 500K occurs about 70% of the way there in time. So that's true for other things. When you're when you're at a hundred thousand, you might think, "Man, I've been working for three years, saved up a hundred thousand. I'm only a tenth of the way there." But actually, you're closer to a quarter of the way there in time. And it's it's kind of like start climbing a mountain, and you put in a little bit of work. You're starting to get sweaty and tired, and you look up at the top, and you see the climbers way up there look like little ants, and you just think, "I can't, <laughs> I can't do that." I can't get all the way up there. Um, but what you don't realize is with, with this kind of mountain, the higher you climb, the easier it gets, the lighter you get. And instead of getting tired, the higher you climb, you get like more energized. So I guess, yeah, that's my advice is not to think of it in, in linear terms because it's not a linear problem. And if you make any kind of progress at the beginning, uh, like we talked about earlier, that's actually really big progress towards towards your financial future. Yeah, su- success helps breed more success, right? Exactly. It's each other, and you have these little victories in your mind. And mm-hmm. Joel, thanks for coming on. Really appreciate it. Really cool story. Net worth of over five hundred thousand. Well, on your way to becoming a millionaire. So, thanks again for your time tonight. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, thank you. I, I love the podcast. Take care. Thanks, Joel. Thanks for listening to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.